morning. Thanks, Chris. It is so good to be with you. Uh, happy Easter. This is, this is such an important day. For those of us who know and follow Jesus, um, this day is a day that, that commemorates, that points back to, that, that remembers the resurrection of, of Jesus. And the resurrection, the story of Jesus, if you don't know it, it comes at the end of just a, a, a crazy week. Uh, we call it Holy Week now, but if you would have been with Jesus and a friend of Jesus and following him at that point, that it just would have been the most bizarre week. It started with everybody celebrating Jesus at the beginning of the week, and then a short time later, that kind of Thursday night later, early Friday morning, he's arrested and betrayed and all that starts to go down and everything flips on him and he's executed on a cross. He's in the grave part of Friday, all day Saturday and Sunday morning, and then he conquers death and rises again. It's a story that for many of us in this room, it has is, it is literally changed our lives. We are different people because of that story, because we've believed that God loved us through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We believe that God is the only God of all the gods that are offered, of all the stories that are told. He's the only God who suffers for those he loves by sending his son, Jesus. Later on, all that story is recorded in the early in the New Testament, but later in the New Testament, there's this, there's this verse, there's this sentence that says, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, if he didn't really do that, if that didn't really happen, that if he wasn't really dead, and the Romans were really good at killing people, if he wasn't really dead and really rise from the dead and conquer death, then our preaching is useless and our faith is useless. Our preaching is useless. And, and that's not just like when somebody gets up on a, on a stage in a church setting and, and talks. It, it, it's when anybody declares the story of Jesus, when anyone sings the words that are true of Jesus, that would be useless if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Believing in Jesus would be kind of silly if he didn't rise from the dead. So this day, this event in history matters deeply to each and every one of us. Whether you believe in Jesus or just think that, that, that he's not real or God's not real or this didn't really happen or that Jesus is in a tomb somewhere in the Mediterranean. But for those of us that believe that Jesus rose from the dead, it's radically changed our life and makes all the difference in the world. That's the what that happened there's also a why. Why did that happen? And what I'd like to do is, is tell a story, tell a story about me. And it's actually a story about you. It's a story that is recorded in the Bible, but it doesn't have my name in it, and it doesn't have your name in it. But it explains why Jesus conquered death and rose again. And so I want to to look at this story for just the next few moments. It's a story that's, that's recorded in the book of Luke, which is the third book in the New Testament, in chapter 19. And so let's look at that and, and see what happens. Jesus has uh, about to enter Jerusalem, where all this crazy stuff of Holy Week happens, and he has to pass through a town called Jericho before he gets to Jerusalem. And that's where the story happens, where he, he interacts with a person. And as he's walking through Jericho, he picks out one particular person. Here's the story. Chapter, or verse 1 says this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So, Jesus walking through 
Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem. People are anticipating him. He is, he's got like a, a crowd of people that, that are really interested in him, that they like him, that they're following him, that they're cheering for him, that they're anticipating great things from him. They like what he's been teaching. They like the miracles that he's been doing. And what they really want is for Jesus to show up and overthrow the Romans. So all of the Jewish people are cheering for him and they want to get close to him. And so they're crowding the streets and Jesus has to kind of have the crowd parted so he can walk down the roads of Jericho to get to Jerusalem. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. And similar to today, but even worse for him than it would be for us, is that that's not a popular vocation. You don't tell somebody I'm a tax collector, and you certainly don't tell somebody I'm a chief tax collector and have people be really warm to you. For us today, it's great. That's just a reminder that I have to pay taxes. And for most of us, we have a very strong opinion of how much taxes we pay and what it would be an appropriate amount and what we actually pay and all that. And so that's just not a fun place to start and meeting somebody and going, oh, hey, great, you're a tax collector. Zacchaeus, it was worse for him because he was a Jew and he was collecting taxes from his people, the Jews, and giving it to the Romans. And not only that, but the way that he got wealthy was by charging more than he should. That might be a common experience for you too, especially this time of year when you see the number at the end and go, no, 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 that can't be what I actually owe. Zacchaeus would do that to everyone and he would take money from them. And so he had gotten wealthy. And so people didn't like him because he was wealthy. People didn't like him because he was a tax collector. And then it also says that, that he's short. And the Bible doesn't typically give information about like height and weight on, on people, but it tells us that Zacchaeus is short. And basically what that's to point out is just another layer of how much people didn't like him. Now, they didn't like him because he wasn't tall. That would be worse. But what it tells us is that when he wanted to see Jesus, they went out of their way to make sure that he couldn't. See, if, if you have somebody that you care about, whether it's a, uh, uh, maybe a, a kid or a friend who doesn't happen to be very tall, and you're looking at something or watching something, or you're going to take a picture you naturally, for the people that you care about, you bring them in front of you if they're shorter. Nobody did that for Zacchaeus. They actually were glad that he was behind the crowd and he couldn't see Jesus, that there was something in between what he wanted. And so Zacchaeus had to run down the street and climb up in a, in a tree. So here's a guy who's got the best clothes, expensive pants and expensive shirt and great jacket, and he's running down the street and he climbs up in a tree in all of his nice threads. And there he is in a tree at the end of the street, and Jesus is headed that way. Here's what Jesus does. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. It doesn't tell us who else Jesus talked to. I kind of imagine Jesus taking time for the kids that were in the street near him, and maybe he picked out a few people. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. All it tells us is there's one person that he calls out, one person that he stops for, one person that he talks to, and it's the person that nobody else likes. It's the person that can't even get a view of Jesus until he climbs into a tree. And Jesus walks down the street and stops and looks at Zacchaeus and says, hey, come down. Not only that, but I'm coming over to your house. Now, for us to invite somebody over to our house is one thing. To have somebody invite themselves over, that's a whole other thing. 
And maybe that'll happen to you when we're done with our gathering. Maybe somebody will come up to you and say, hey, I'm coming over to your house for Easter brunch. I hope you're prepared. That doesn't happen a whole lot. But when it does, if you have somebody over or if you go over to somebody else's house, like that's just kind of a, a common courtesy, a friendship thing. But there's not a sense that you're signing off on who that person is and what they stand for. In that culture at that time, to go over to somebody else's house, you didn't do that unless you were ready to say, I know what this person is about and I'm willing to be known to be with them. So everybody loved Jesus and they wanted to, to know him and be close to him, but he picks the guy that nobody likes. And not only that, he's not just courteous to him when no one else is. He says, I'm coming over to your house. And by doing that, he's saying, I am valuing this individual. I'm not, I'm not signing off that they're a chief tax collector. I'm not signing off that they've stolen, but I am gonna come over to their house and spend time with them. And in that sense, validate that they matter. It's very different for us today, what was going on there. And Zacchaeus, would have been completely unprepared for this to happen and so excited that it was happening. And there's something happens in Zacchaeus' life next. Verse eight says this, after they're at, at Zacchaeus' house and after they've hung out for a while, we don't know how long they've been there or if they've eaten the meal or what they've eaten, but this is what happens next. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to Jesus, to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give up half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus goes over to Zacchaeus' house. They hang out, they eat maybe. You know, maybe they, they watch a movie. Maybe they have a conversation. We don't know exactly what they do. But at some point that day, that evening, Zacchaeus stands up and he says, okay, Jesus. And here we need to do something that you might not be prepared for. I know it's Easter Sunday morning. Um, there's, I want to invite you to do a little bit of math with me. I know maybe you came not expecting to do any math, but just, just hang with me just for a moment and do this math with me. Wealthy guy, lots of money. In a moment, he stands up from the couch and says to Jesus, 50%, half of what I have, I'm going to give to the poor. In that culture at that time, Jewish culture, there was a very clear mark in your income, in your wealth of, of what was generous. Generosity for us today is, is a little bit hard to nail down. We don't know what each other makes. I mean, we might have some kind of idea, but we don't, we don't know. And so, so when somebody gives something away, we're not quite sure. Is that generous or is that no skin off their back? I mean, we don't, we, we don't really know how to calculate that. In that culture at that time, they would have known income levels and how much everybody made and had and what their wealth was. And there was a marker, and the marker was 20%. Up to 20% to give away was generous. But when you cross from 20% to 21%, you all of a sudden moved from generosity to risky, no longer prudent, unwise levels of giving your stuff away. 20% was okay, but to go beyond that was not prudent, was not wise, was looked down upon. Zacchaeus has blown past that time and a half to go to 50%. And he says, 50% I'm just giving away. That's way beyond generous 
And that would have been looked at as like, that's not wise. What are you doing? But then what does he say next? He goes on and he says, and if I've cheated anyone, read into that, I know I've cheated everyone. And I'm going to give back four times what I've taken from anyone. What he is doing as he's saying that, what we see happen in Zacchaeus is that he has changed. He has become a different person in that evening as a result of being with Jesus. Whether you believe that there's a God in the universe or not, whether you believe the story of Jesus living in the Mediterranean world for some 33 years and being brutally executed on a cross by the Romans and being buried and then rising again from the dead. Whether you believe that story or not, when we think about God, there's something just in our nature that begins to interact with God in what I would like to say is a transactional relationship. It, there's something about us that we just think about the God of the universe as, as constantly assessing us as if we've done enough. If we've done enough good, if we've done too much bad, can we do enough good to make up for the bad? How is God measuring me? Do I measure up? Am I enough? Can I be changed? And we think of God and we begin negotiating. If I could just have a, have a deal with God where I do enough that I can know that he loves me and that he wants to make things right with me, if I can just be enough, if I can do enough good and not do enough bad, that somehow the transition will work out and I'll be okay. That didn't happen with Zacchaeus. He wasn't offered a transaction. Jesus didn't ask for anything from him in terms of his money and how he gave it away and managed it. What we see is the response to Zacchaeus receiving Jesus' love. No one else would love him. No one else wanted to be his friend. No one else cared for him. And here Jesus pays attention to him, says he's valuable, spends time with him, doesn't offer him a transaction, doesn't offer him a deal, doesn't measure him in any way. And at some point in the evening, Zacchaeus, overcome by the love of this man in his home, says, I am different now. And what he does when he gives away 50% of his stuff and then pays back four times, what he does is he lets go of the very thing he was holding on to. His wealth is what, died, what defined him. His wealth is what gave him hope. His wealth is what gave him security. His wealth is what gave him an identity. And he had wrapped his arms around that identity. And yet he found as he was holding on to that wealth, he was also running behind the crowd trying to get a look at Jesus because he knew that this wasn't enough for him. And he longed for something more and he wanted something more. And he wondered if it was in Jesus. And then at his home that night, he says, I'm willing to let go of that and I'm willing to hold on to you, Jesus. Because this isn't working for me and this isn't enough. And I haven't found anything else in this life like you. Jesus says in response in response to Zacchaeus receiving his love. Zacchaeus receives his love, responds with this declaration of how he's changed and transformed. Not a transaction, but a transformation. And Jesus responds to him, this is a true son of Abraham, which sounds weird to us. Maybe you're not longing to hear that today. But what Jesus is saying is here is a man of faith. 
here's a man who is now believing in me. And so he is who he was created to be now. This is what he was created for. Jesus goes on to say, I've come to seek. I've come down to walk down the road and find the one I'm looking for and look up into a tree and to save that one who is lost. And my name's not in this story, but this is where I come into the story because that's my story because I was lost, because I was clinging to something that couldn't fulfill my deepest needs and identity, because I was longing to end up on the positive side of a transaction with the God of the universe based on the things I could not do and could do. And so this is where this is my story, that I never found a transaction that would work in my favor, but when I received the love of God and the person and work of Jesus, something happened in here. And for many of us, this is our story as well. That when we finally say, I know I am lost, and not lost by, like, I just need to get around the bend, or I just need to get down the street, or I can just see that it's just out there, but lost in a sense of I have no idea how to make this all work. That I can't make my life fit back together. I, I grew up playing Legos, and I, I loved them, and I was so glad when I had kids because they were gonna play Legos. I was gonna disciple them into the Lego experience and they didn't have a choice about that. And when my oldest son got somewhere in the near the range, they weren't in the range, but they were near the range of the ages on the boxes of Legos, when it says whatever, eight to 45. And when they got close, they weren't anywhere near close. I was like three years old. It was way before they should have been playing with Legos, but I decided we were going to play with Legos. So we got it out and got the directions, got all the pieces, and, I, and we put it together. And it was an X-Wing fighter. And we put that together because when I was a kid, they didn't have X-Wing fighters, and they really should have. I had the idea when I was a kid and watched Star Wars, and they didn't do it until like 20 years later. Flying his X-Wing fighter that we put together, dropped it in the kitchen. And if you've ever played with Legos before and you drop it on a hard floor, it just disintegrates. And because he wasn't in the age range of the recommended age for playing with Legos, his brain could not comprehend how that would all get put back together and so crushingly fell to his knees, bawling his eyes out because he didn't think this would ever work together. And I came along and said, it's okay, Luke is not dead. I, we will put it back together. And I knew how to put it back together, but he didn't. In his mind, it was ruined forever. It was lost. Without Jesus, Jesus tells us, the Bible tells us, people have followed him for centuries, and hear it from me today. Without Jesus, you're in a place where your life is in pieces, and it just doesn't fit back together, and you can't. You've tried, and it doesn't all fit. You can't. Jesus is there to save you. And your life on the outside can look like all the success and all that it's working and going fine, or your life can look like an utter mess. But without Jesus, regardless of where you're at and your station in life, he says, you're lost without me, you're ruined. Dallas Willard is a philosopher and author, and he says this about lost. Something that is lost is something that is not where it is supposed to be. And you hear that, and maybe you're thinking, is that all it takes to be a philosopher and an author? Like, yeah, I, get, I can write that. I know that that's what lost is, not something that's not where it's supposed to be. I get that. 
But listen to how he goes on and talks about it. And therefore is not integrated into the life of the one to whom it belongs and to whom it is lost. When you are ruined and when you are lost without Jesus, you're not integrated into the life of the one who carefully, patiently, with great detail and love, created you and created you for him, to be in relationship with him, to not be integrated into the one to whom you belong. You're lost to him without him, which is why we're lost, we're ruined, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8, that wherever we are, how lost and ruined we are, that Jesus is walking down the street with eyes for you and saying, I want to be with you. Would you receive my love? You don't have to do anything or clean your life up, be perfect, or stop being imperfect. You just have to receive my love. Know that you're ruined and broken and in sin without me. And I've done all the work by going to the cross and then conquering the power of sin and death and rising again. Here's what I'd like to invite you to do with me right now. As we celebrate and acknowledge that Jesus has conquered death, the very good news that we tell, that we sing of, that we celebrate, I just want you to to pray with me in, in just a moment. We have a, a person in our community who, this is now her story, that Jesus found her and she responded to Jesus. And she's gonna get baptized. We celebrated a few baptisms earlier today as well and we have one planned right now. If, if you're at that point where you're saying, this is what I've been looking for and this is what I've needed and maybe there's been something in between you and, and Jesus and maybe it's a crowd or maybe it's a way of thinking or maybe it's, a habit, or maybe it's an addiction, or whatever it might be. And you've said, I, I've stopped trying to get through that and fight that. I'm just going to receive the love of God. I'm going to pray, invite you to pray with me. And then what baptism is, is it's going under the water, and it's coming back out, and it represents part of this story as well, being lost and dead in sin and coming to life in Jesus. And so you're actually invited not only to believe in Jesus, but to follow Jesus into baptism. We've got clothes and some really good-looking shorts and shirt. And if you want to make that decision right, right here and now, it takes a declaration of faith. It takes answering the question. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. We'd love to baptize you. So I'm going to pray, and if you want to pray with me, you can. But it, to follow Jesus and to be saved from being lost it simply takes, I receive your love. I receive your forgiveness that you paid for me on the cross. Jesus, we declare you in this place that you are alive, that you're more powerful than death. You're more powerful than sin. You're more powerful than my darkest day and my worst act. You are more powerful than my doubt than my unbelief. You and you alone have given your life on the cross for me. Conquered death and rose again. And so I believe that. I receive your love. I receive your forgiveness. And I want to follow you. I want to lay down my life and take up your life. In Jesus' name, amen.